0: Hi, everybody. Carla here, and welcome back to another episode of Carla Reads the Classics. I'm so glad you tuned in. We are slowly but surely making our way through the picture of Dorian Gray. I hope you're enjoying the story so far. I do apologize for the delayed uploads, but I've been having some problems, but I won't bore you with that it'll get done. Just stick with me. Please do. In any event, what's going on with you? I'm excited because tomorrow I get to see Elton John in concert. And you know, I thought Elton John was retired. And I thought, you know, that's the one concert I really wish I had been able to see before he retired. And someone said to me, well, no, he's not retired. He's actually touring again. And this was a couple years ago that they told me that. And I said, no, I'm quite sure." That Elton John is retired, and he 's not he 's not touring anymore, and as it turns out, he was retired, and then he is no longer retired, and he 's doing a show he 's doing a concert he 's doing a tour and i 'm so excited that he 's in my city this weekend, and someone gifted me a ticket and i 'm so excited to go i haven 't been to a concert in eon so what 's your favorite concert? Have you been to several? Do you have a favorite? Um, I had one concert that stood out, and I haven't been to very many, but the one that really, really, really stands out to me was Luther Vandross, and this was back in the 90s, and he put on a phenomenal show, May He Rest in Peace. But back to our classic readings here. Um, I hope you're enjoying the story. Uh, The picture of Dorian Gray is, like so many of them, one of my favorites, And uh, there's 20 chapters, and we are slowly but surely making our way through. Um, Let's see, what else did I want to tell you? I want to remind you that there is merchandise now for Carla Reads the Classics, and you can find all the details, all the information on how to get yours in the episode details. There are hoodies, there's phone covers, and several other things you might be interested in, so please do Uh, check it out and you'll find the link for that in the episode details. I'd like to also encourage you to please uh, sign up for my YouTube channel. I don't think they call it signing up. They say subscribe. So please subscribe to my YouTube channel. I would really, really appreciate that as well. And you will find the link to that YouTube channel in the episode details as well. So thank you again for tuning in today. I really hope you enjoy the reading and please stay tuned. The Picture of Dorian Gray. This is Chapter 11, Part B. The King of Ceylon rode through his city with a large ruby in his hand as the ceremony of his coronation. The gates of the palace of John the priest were made of sardius, with the horn of the horned snake inwrought, so that no man might bring poison within. Over the gable were two golden apples, in which were two carbuncles, so that the gold might shine by day and the carbuncles by night. In Lodge's Strange Romance, A Marguerite of America, it was stated that in the chamber of the queen one could behold all the chaste ladies of the world, in out of silver, looking through fair mirrors of chrysolites, carbuncles, sapphires, and green emeralds marco polo had seen the inhabitants of zipangu place rose-colored pearls in the mouths of the dead a sea monster had been enamored of the pearl that the diver brought to king perzoes and had slain the thief and mourned for seven moons over its loss when the huns lured the king into the great pit he flung it away Procopius tells the story, nor was it ever found again through the emperor Anastasius offered 500 weight of gold pieces for it. The king of Malabar had shown to a certain Venetian a rosary of 304 pearls, one for every god that he worshipped. When the duke of Valentino son of Alexander the VI, Sixth visited Louis the Twelfth of France, his horse was loaded with gold leaves according to Brantome and his cap had double rows of rubies that threw out a great light. Charles of England had ridden in stirrups hung with four hundred and twenty-one diamonds. Richard the Second had a coat valued at thirty thousand marks, which was covered with ballast rubies. Hall described Henry VIII on his way to the tower previous to his coronation as wearing a jacket of raised gold, the placard embroidered with diamonds and other rich stones, and a great like about his neck of large ballaces. The favorites of James I wore earrings of emeralds set in gold filigrane. Edward II gave to Piers Gaveston a suit of red gold armor studded with jacinths a collar of gold roses set with turquoise stones and a skull-cap with pearls. Henry the Second wore jeweled gloves reaching to the elbow and had a hawk-glove sewn with twelve rubies and fifty-two great orients. The Ducal hat of Charles the Rash, the last Duke of Burgundy of his race, was hung with pear-shaped pearls and studded with sapphires. How exquisite life had once been, how gorgeous in its pomp and decoration. Even to read of the luxury of the dead was wonderful. Then he turned his attention to embroideries and to tapestries that performed the office of frescoes in the chill rooms of the northern nations of Europe. As he investigated the subject, and he always had an extraordinary faculty of becoming absolutely absorbed for the moment in whatever he took up, he was almost saddened by the reflection of the ruin that time brought on beautiful and wonderful things. He, at any rate, had escaped that. Summer followed summer, and the yellow jonquils bloomed and died many times, and nights of horror repeated the story of their shame. But he was unchanged. No winter marred his face or stained his flower-like bloom. How different it was with material things! Where had they passed to? Where was the great crocus-colored robe on which the gods fought against the giants that had been worked by brown girls for the pleasure of Athena?' Where the huge valerium that Nero had stretched across the Colosseum at Rome, that Titan sail of purple on which was represented the starry sky, and Apollo driving a chariot drawn by white gilt-reined steeds. He longed to see the curious table-napkins wrought for the priest of the sun, on which were displayed all the dainties and viands that could be wanted for a feast—the mortuary cloth of King Chilperic, with its three hundred golden bees, the fantastic robes that excited the indignation of Bishop of Pontus— and were figured with lions, panthers, bears, dogs, forests, rocks, hunters, all, in fact, that a painter can copy from nature, and the coat that Charles of Orleans once wore, on the sleeves of which were embroidered, the verses of a song beginning, Madame, je sois tout joyeux, the musical accompaniment of the words being wrought in gold thread, and each note of square shape in those days formed with four pearls, he read of the room that was prepared at the palace at rheims for the use of queen joan of burgundy and was decorated with thirteen hundred and twenty-one parrots made embroidery and blazoned with the king's arms and five hundred and sixty-one butterflies whose wings were similarly ornamented with the arms of the queen the whole worked in gold Catherine Demetrices had a morning bed made for her of black velvet powdered with crescents and suns its curtains were of damask with leafy wreaths and garlands figured upon a gold and silver ground and fringed and fringed along the edges with broideries of pearls and it stood in a room hung with rows of the queen's devices and cut black velvet velvet upon cloth of silver Louis XIV had gold-embroidered caridides 15 feet high in his apartment. The state bed of Sobieski, king of Poland, was made of Smyrna gold brocade embroidered in turquoises with verses from the Koran. Its supports were of silver gilt, beautifully chased, and profusely set with enameled and jeweled medallions. It had been taken from the Turkish camp before Vienna, and the standard of Mohammed had stood beneath the tremulous gilt of its canopy. And so, for a whole year, he sought to accumulate the most exquisite specimens that he could find of textile and embroidered work, getting the dainty Delhi muslins finely wrought with gold-thread palmates and stitched over with iridescent beetles' wings, the daca gauzes that, from their transparency, are known in the East as woven air and from Java, elaborate yellow Chinese hangings, books bound in tawny satins, or fair blue silks and wrought with fleur-de-lis, birds and images. Veils of laces worked in Hungary point, Sicilian brocades and stiff Spanish velvets. Georgian work with its gilt coins and Japanese fokusas with their green-toned golds and their marvelously plumaged birds. He had a special occasion A special passion also for ecclesiastical vestments, as indeed he had for everything connected with the service of the church. In the long cedar chest that lined the west gallery of his house, he had stored away many rare and beautiful specimens of what is really the raiment of the bride of Christ, who must wear purple and jewels and fine linen that she may hide the pallid, macerated body that is worn by the suffering that she seeks for and wounded by self-inflicted pain. He possessed a gorgeous cope of crimson silk and gold-thread damask, figured with a repeating pattern of golden pomegranate set in six-petaled formal blossoms, beyond which, on either side, was the pineapple device wrought in seed pearls. The Ulfries were divided into panels representing scenes from the life of the Virgin, and the coronation of the Virgin was figured in colors and colored silks upon the hood. This was Italian work of the 15th century. Another cope was a green velvet embroidered with heart-shaped group acanthus leaves, from which spread long-stemmed white blossoms, the details of which were picked out with silver thread and colored crystals. The morse bore a seraph's head and gold thread raised work. The Orphries were woven in a diaper of red and gold silk and were starred with medallions of many saints and martyrs, among whom was St. Sebastian. He had chasublos, also of amber-colored silk, and blue silk and gold brocade, and yellow silk damask and cloth of gold, figured with representations of the passion and crucifixion of Christ, and embroidered with lions and peacocks and other emblems, dalmatics of white satin and pink silk damask, decorated with tulips and dolphins and fleur-de-lis altar frontals of crimson velvet and blue linen and many corporals chalice veils and sudaria in the mystic offices to which such things were put there was something that quickened his imagination for these treasures and everything that he collected in his lovely house were to be to him means of forgetfulness modes by which he could escape for a season from the fear that seemed to him at times to be almost too great to be borne. Upon the walls of the lovely locked room where he had spent so much of his boyhood, he had hung with his own hands the terrible portrait whose changing features showed him the real degradation of his life, and in front of it had draped the purple and gold pall as a curtain. For weeks he would not go there, would forget the hideous painted thing— and get back his light heart his wonderful joyousness his passionate absorption in mere existence then suddenly some night he would creep out of the house go down to dreadful places near bluegate fields and stay there day after day until he was driven away on his return he would sit in front of the picture sometimes loathing in and himself but filled at other times with that pride of individualism that is half the fascination of sin and smiling with secret pleasure at the misshapen shadow that had to bear the burden that should have been his own. After a few years, he could not endure to be long out of England and gave up the villa that he had shared at Troutville with Lord Henry, as well as the little white walled-in house at Algiers where they had more than once spent the winter. He hated to be separated from the picture that was such a part of his life, and was also afraid that during his absence, someone might gain access to the room in spite of the elaborate bars that he had caused to be placed upon the door. He was quite conscious that this would tell them nothing. It was true that the portrait still preserved under all the foulness and ugliness of the face its marked likeness to himself. But what could they learn from that? He would laugh at anyone who tried to taunt him. He had not painted it. What was it to him how vile and full of shame it looked? Even if he told them, would they believe it? Yet he was afraid. Sometimes, when he was down at his great house in Nottinghamshire, entertaining the fashionable young men of his own rank who were his chief companions, and astounding the country by the wanton luxury and gorgeous splendor of his mode of life, he would suddenly leave his guests and rush back to town to see that the door had not been tampered with and that the picture was still there. What if it should be stolen? The mere thought made him cold with horror. Surely the world would know his secret then, perhaps the world already suspected it, for while he fascinated many, there were not a few who distrusted him. He was very nearly blackballed at the West End Club, of which his birth and social position fully entitled him to become a member, and it was said that on one occasion, when he was brought by a friend into the smoking-room of the Churchill, the Duke of Berwick and another gentleman got up in marked manner and went out. Curious stories became current about him after he had passed his twenty-fifth year. It was rumored that he had been brawling with foreign sailors in a low den in the distant parts of Whitechapel, and that he consorted with thieves and coiners and knew the mysteries of their trade. His extraordinary absences became notorious, and when he used to reappear again in society, men would whisper to each other in corners, or pass him with a sneer, or look at him with cold-searching eyes as though they were determined to discover his secret. Of such insolences and attempted slights, he, of course, took no notice, and in the opinion of most people, his frank debonair manner, his charming boyish smile, and the infinite grace of that wonderful youth that seemed never to leave him, were in themselves a sufficient answer to the calumnies, for they so termed them, that were circulated about him. It was remarked, however, that some of those who had been most intimate with him appeared after a time to shun him women who had wildly adored him and for his sake had braved all social censure to set convention at defiance were seen to grow pallid with shame of horror if dorian gray entered the room yet these whispered scandals only increased in the eyes of many his strange and dangerous charm his great wealth was a certain element of security society civilized society at least is never very ready to believe anything to the detriment of those who are both rich and fascinating it feels instinctively that manners are of more importance than morals and in its opinion in its opinion the highest respectability is of much less value than the possession of a good chef and after all it is a very poor consolation to be told that the man who has given one a bad dinner or poor wine is irreproachable in his private life even the cardinal virtues cannot atone for half-cold entrees as lord henry remarked once in a discussion on the subject and there is possibly a good deal to be said for his view for the canons of good society are or should be the same as the canons of art form is absolutely essential to it it should have the dignity of a ceremony as well as its unreality and should combine the insincere character of a romantic play with the wit and beauty that makes such plays delightful to us an insincerity such a is, insin- is insincerity such a terrible thing i think not it is merely a method by which we can multiply our personalities such at any rate was dorian gray's opinion he used to wonder at the shallow psychology of those who conceived the ego in man as a thing simple, permanent, reliable, and of one essence. To him, man was a being with myriad lives and myriad sensations, a complex, a complex, multiform creature that bore within itself strange legacies of thought and passion, and whose very flesh was tainted with the monstrous maladies of the dead. He loved to stroll through the gaunt-cold picture gallery of his country house and look at the various portraits of those whose blood flowed in his veins. Here was Philip Herbert, described by Francis Osborne in his memoirs on the reigns of Queen Elizabeth and King James, as one who was caressed by the court for his handsome face, which kept him not long company. Was it young Herbert's life that he sometimes led?' Had some strange poisonous germ crept from body to body till it had reached his own? Was it some dim sense that ruined grace that had made him so suddenly and almost without cause give utterance in Basil Hallward's studio to the mad prayer that had so changed his life? Here in gold-embroidered, red doublet, jeweled sure sh- and gilt-edged ruff and wristbands stood Sir Anthony Sherrard, with his silver and black armor piled at his feet. What had this man's legacy been? Had the lover of Giovanna of Naples bequeathed him some inheritance of sin and shame? Were his own actions merely the dreams that the dead man had not dared to realize?' "'Here, from the fading canvas, smiled Lady Elizabeth Devereux "'in her gauze-hood-pearl stomacher and pink-slashed sleeves. "'A flower was in her right hand, "'and her left clasped an enameled collar of white and damask roses. "'On a table by her side lay a mandolin and an apple. "'There were large green rosettes upon her little pointed shoes. "'He knew her life and the strange stories that were told about her lovers.' had he something of her temperament in him these oval heavy-lidded eyes seemed to look curiously at him what of george willoughby with his powdered hair and fantastic patches how evil he looked the face was satirine and swarthy and the sensual lips seemed to be twisted with disdain Delicate lace ruffles fell over the lean hands that were so overladen with rings. He had been a macaroni of the eighteenth century, and the friend in his youth of Lord Ferrars. What of the second Lord Beckenham, the companion of Prince Regent in his wildest days, and one of the witnesses at the secret marriage of Mrs. Fitzherbert. How proud and handsome he was, with his chestnut curls and insolent pose! What passions had he bequeathed! The world had looked upon him as infamous. He had led the orgies at Carlton House. The star of the garter glittered upon his breast. Beside him hung the portrait of his wife, a pallid, thin-lipped woman in black. Her blood also stirred within him. How curious it all seemed! And his mother with her Lady Hamilton face and her moist, wine-dashed lips. He knew what he had got from her. He had got from her his beauty and his passion for the beauty of others.' She laughed at him in her loose, beshante dress. There were vine leaves in her hair. The purple spilled from the cup she was holding. The carnations of the paintings had withered, but the eyes were still wonderful in their depth and brilliancy of color. They seemed to follow him wherever he went. Yet one had ancestors in literature as well as in one's own race, nearer perhaps in type and temperament, many of them, and certainly with an influence of one of which one was more absolutely conscious. There were times when it appeared to Dorian Gray that the whole of history was merely The record of his own life, not as he had lived it in act and circumstance, but as his imagination had created it for him, as it had been in his brain and in his passions. He felt that he had known them all, those strange, terrible figures that had passed across the stage of the world and made sin so marvellous and evil so full of subtlety. It seemed to him that in some mysterious way their lives had been his own the hero of the wonderful novel that had so influenced his life, had himself known this curious fancy. In the seventh chapter, he tells how crowned with laurel, lest lightning might strike him. He sat at, as Tiberus in a garden at Capri, reading the shameful books of Elephantus, while dwarfs and peacocks spreaded round him, and the flute player mocked the swinger of the censer. And as Caligula had caroused with the green shirted jockeys in their stables and supped in an ivory manger with the jowl fronted horse, as Domitian had wandered through a corridor lined with marble mirrors, looking round with haggard eyes for the reflection of the danger that was to end his days and sick with that ennui, that terrible tadium vitae that comes on those whom life denies nothing, and had peered through a clear emerald at the red shambles of the cirrus, and then, in a litter of pearl and purple drawn by silver-shot mules, been carried through the streets of pomegranates to a house of gold, and heard men cry on Nero Caesar as he passed by, and, as Elagabulus had painted his face with colors, and piled the distaff among the women, and brought the moon from Carthage, and given her in mystic marriage to the sun. Over and over again, Dorian used to read this fantastic chapter, and the two chapters immediately following, in which, as in some curious tapestries or cunningly wrought enamels, were pictured the awful and beautiful forms of those whom vice and blood and weariness had made monstrous or mad. Filippo, Duke of Milan, who slew his wife and painted her lips with a scarlet poison that her lover might suck death from her dead thing he fondled, Pietro, Barbi, the Venetian known as Paul II, who sought in his vanity to assume the title of Formosus, and whose tiara, valued at 200,000 florins, was brought at the price of a terrible sin, Gian Maria Visconti, who used hounds to chase living men, and whose murdered body was covered with roses by a harlot who had loved him, the Borgia on his white horse, with fratricide riding beside him, and his mantle stained with the blood of Perotto, Pietro Rario, and young Cardinal Archbishop of Florence, child of Minions and Sixtus V, whose beauty was equaled only by his debauchery, and who received Leonora of Aragon in a pavilion of white and crimson silk, filled with nymphs and centaurs, and gilded a boy that he might serve at the feast as Ganymede or Hylas, Esalen, whose melancholy could be cured only by the spectacle of death, and who had a passion for red blood, as other men have for red wine, the son of the fiend, as was reported, and one who had cheated his father at dice when gambling when gambling with him for his own soul, Giambastida, Zebul, who in mockery took the name of innocent, and into whose torpid veins the blood of three lads was infused by a Jewish doctor. Sigismondo Malatesta, the lover of Isara and the lord of Rimini, whose effigy was burned at Rome, as the enemy of God and man, who strangled Palicina with a napkin and gave poison Genevra dieste in a cup of emerald, and in honor of a shameful passion, built a pagan church for Christian worship. Charles the sixth, who had so wildly adored his brother's wife that a leper had warned him of the insanity that was coming on him, and who, when his brain was sickened and grown strange, could only be soothed by Saracen cards painted with images of love and death and madness, and in his trimmed jerkin and jeweled cap and acanthus like curls. Grifonetto Baglioni, who slew Astor with his bride, and Simonetto with his page, and whose comeliness was such that, as he lay dying in the yellow piazza of Perugia, those who had hated him could not choose but weep, and Atalanta, who had cursed him, blessed him there was a horrible fascination in them all. He saw them at night, and they troubled his imagination in the day. The Renaissance knew of strange manners of poisoning, poisoning by a helmet and a lighted torch, by an embroidered glove and a bejeweled fan, and a gilded pomander, and by an amber chain. Dorian Gray had been poisoned by a book, There were moments when he looked on evil simply as a mode through which he could realize his conception of the beautiful. Chapter 12. It was on the 9th of November, the eve of his own 38th birthday, as he often remembered afterwards. He was walking home about 11 o'clock from Lord Henry's, where he had been dining, and was wrapped in heavy furs as the night was cold and foggy. At the corner of Gruvesner Square and South Audley Street, a man passed him in the midst, walking very fast and with the collar of his gray ulster turned up. He had a bag in his hand. Dorian recognized him. It was Basil Hallward. A strange sense of fear, for which he could not account, came over him. He made no sign of recognition and went on quickly in the direction of his own house. But Hallward had seen him dorian heard him first stopping on the pavement and then hurrying after him in a few moments his hand was on his arm dorian what an extraordinary piece of luck i have been waiting for you in your library ever since nine o'clock finally i took pity on your tired servant and told him to go to bed as he let me out i am off to paris by the midnight train and i particularly wanted to see you before i left I thought it was you, or rather your fur coat, as you passed me, but I wasn't quite sure. Didn't you recognize me? In this fog, my dear Basil? Why, I can't even recognize Grovender Square. I believe my house is somewhere about here, but I don't feel at all certain about it. I am sorry you are going away, as if as I have not seen you for ages, but I suppose you will be back soon. No. I am going to be out of England for six months. I intend to take a studio in Paris and shut myself up until I have finished a great picture I have in my head. However, it wasn't about myself I wanted to talk. Here we are at your door. Let me come in for a moment. I have something to say to you. I shall be charmed, but won't you miss your train? Said Dorian Gray languidly as he passed up the steps and opened the door with his latch key. The lamplight struggled out struggled out through the fog, and Hallward looked at his watch. I have heaps of time, he answered. The train doesn't go till 12.15, and it's only just 11. In fact, I was on my way to the club to look for you when I met you. You see, I shan't have any delay about luggage as I have sent on my heavy things. All I have with me in this is in this bag, and I can easily get to Victoria in 20 minutes. Dorian looked at him and smiled. What a way for a Fashionable painter to travel, a gladstone bag and an ulster. Come in, or the fog will get into your house. And mind you, don't talk about anything serious. Nothing is serious nowadays, at least nothing should be. Hallward shook his head as he entered and followed Dorian into the library. There was a bright wood f- fire blazing in the large open hearth. The lamps were lit, and an open Dutch silver spirit case stood. "'with some siphons of soda water and large cut glass tumblers on a little marcutery table. "'You see, your servant made me quite at home, Dorian. "'He gave me everything I wanted, including your best gold-tipped cigarettes. "'He is a most hospitable creature. "'I like him much better than the Frenchman you used to have. "'What has become of the Frenchman, by the by?' "'Dorian shrugged his shoulders.' I believe he married Lady Radley's maid and has established her in Paris as an English dressmaker. Anglomanie is very fashionable over there now. I hear. It seems silly of the French, doesn't it? But do you know, he was not at all a bad servant. I never liked him, but I had nothing to complain about. One often imagines things that are quite absurd. He was really very devoted to me and seemed quite sorry when he went away. Have another, have another brandy and soda, or would you like? hock and seltzer. I always take hock and seltzer myself. There is sure to be some in the next room. Thanks. I, I won't have anything more, said the painter, taking his cap and coat off and throwing them on the bag that he had placed in the corner. And now, my dear fellow, I want to speak to you seriously. Don't frown like that. You make it so much more difficult for me. What is it all about? cried Dorian in his petulant way, flinging himself down on the sofa. I hope it is not about myself. I am tired of myself tonight. I should like i should like to be somebody else. It is about yourself, answered Hallward in his grave deep voice, and I must say it to you. I shall only keep you half an hour. Dorian sighed and lit a cigarette. Half an hour, he murmured. Is it not much to ask of you, Dorian? And it is entirely for your own sake that I am speaking." I think it right that you should know that the most dreadful things are being said about you in London. I don't wish to know anything about them. I love scandals about other people, but scandals about myself don't interest me. They have not got the charm of novelty. They must interest you, Dorian. Every gentleman is interested in his good name. You don't want people to talk of you as something vile and degraded. Of course, you have your position and your wealth and all that kind of thing, but position and wealth are not everything.' "'Mind you, I don't believe these rumors at all. "'At least I can't believe them when I see you. "'Sin is a thing that writes itself across a man's face. "'It cannot be concealed.' "'People talk sometimes of secret vices. "'There are no such things. "'If a wretched if a wretched man has a vice, "'it shows itself in the lines of his mouth, "'the droop of his eyelids, "'the moulding of his hands even. "'Somebody, I won't mention his name, "'but you know him, "'came to me last year to have his portrait done. "'I had never seen him before "'and had never heard anything about him at the time, "'though I have heard a good deal since. "'He offered an extravagant price.' I refused him. There was something in the shape of his fingers that I hated. I know now that I was quite right in what I fancied about him. His life is dreadful. But you, Dorian, with your pure, bright, innocent face, your marvelous, untroubled youth, I can't believe anything against you. And yet I see you very seldom, and you never come down to the studio now. And when I am away from you, and I hear all these hideous things that people are whispering about you, I don't know what to say. Why is it, Dorian, that a man like the Duke of Berwick leaves the room of a club when you enter it? "'Why is it that so many gentlemen in London "'will neither go to your house or invite you to theirs? "'You used to be a friend of Lord Staveley. "'I met him at dinner last week. "'Your name happened to come up in conversation "'in connection with the miniatures "'you have lent to the exhibition at the Dudley. Staveley curled his lip and said "'that you might have the most artistic taste, "'but that you were a man whom a pure-minded girl "'should not be allowed to know "'and whom no chaste woman should sit in the same room with.' "'I reminded him that I was a friend of yours "'and asked him what he meant. "'He told me. "'He told me right out before everybody. "'It was horrible. "'Why is your friendship so fatal to young men? "'There was that wretched boy in the guards "'who committed suicide. "'You were his great friend. "'There was Sir Henry Ashton "'who had to leave England with a tarnished name. "'You and he were inseparable.' What about Adrian Singleton and his dreadful end? What about Lord Kent's only son and his career? I met his father yesterday in St. James Street. He seemed broken with shame and sorrow. What about the young Duke of Perth? What sort of life has he got now? What gentleman would associate with him? Stop, Basil. You are talking about things of which you know nothing, said Dorian Gray, biting his lip as with a note of infinite contempt in his voice. "'You ask me why Berwick leaves the room when I enter it. "'It is because I know everything about his life, "'not because he knows anything about mine. "'With such blood as he has in his veins, "'how could could his record be clean? "'You ask me about Henry Ashton and young Perth. "'Did I teach the one his vices "'and the other his debauchery? "'If Kent's silly son takes his wife from the streets, "'what is that to me? "'If Adrian Singleton writes his friend's name "'across a bill, am I his keeper?' I know how people chatter in England. The middle classes air their moral prejudices over the gross dinner tables and whisper about what they call profligacies of their betters in order to try and pretend that they are in smart society and on intimate terms with the people they slander. In this country, it is enough for a man to have distinction and brains for every common tongue to wag against him. And what sort of lives do these people who pose as being moral lead themselves? My dear fellow, You forgot that we are in the native land of the hypocrite. Dorian, cried Hallward, this is not the question. England has had enough, I know. It's bad enough, I know. And English society is all wrong. That is the reason I want you to be fine. You have not been fine. One has a right to judge a man by the effect he has over his friends. You are seen to lose all sense of honor, of goodness, of purity. You have filled them with the madness for pleasure. They have gone down into the depths you led them there. Yes, you, you led them there. And yet you can smile as you are smiling now. And there is worse behind. I know you and Harry are inseparable. Surely for that reason, if for none other, you should not have made his sister's name a byword. Take care, Basil. You go too far. I must speak and you must listen. You shall listen. When you met Lady Gwendolyn, not a breath of scandal had ever touched her. Is there a single decent woman in London now who would drive with her in the park? Why, even her children are not allowed to live with her. Then there are the stories, stories that you have been seen creeping at dawn out of dreadful houses and slinking in disguise into the foulest dens in London. Are they true? Can they be true? When I first heard them, I laughed. I hear them now and they make me shudder. What about your country house and the life that is led there? Dorian, you don't know what is said about you. I won't tell you that I want to preach to you. I remember Harry saying once that every man who turned himself into an amateur curate for the moment has always been saying that and then proceeded to break his word. I do want to preach to you. I want you to lead such a life as will make the world respect you. I want you to have a clean name and a fair record. I want you to get rid of the dreadful people you associate with. Don't shrug your shoulders like that. Don't be so indifferent. You have a wonderful influence. Let it be for good, not for evil. They say that you corrupt everyone with whom you become intimate, and that it is quite sufficient to you to enter a house for shame of some kind to follow after. I don't know whether it is so or not. How should I know? But it is said of you i am told things i am told things that it seems impossible to doubt lord gloucester was one of my greatest friends at oxford he showed me a letter that his wife had written to him when she was dying alone in her villa at mentone your name was implicated in the most terrible confession i ever read i told him that it was absurd that i knew you thoroughly and that you were incapable of anything of the kind know you i wonder do i know you "'Before I could answer that, I should have to see your soul.' "'To see my soul,' muttered Dorian Gray, staring up from the sofa "'and turning almost white from fear. "'Yes,' answered Hallward gravely and with deep-toned sorrow in his voice, "'to see your soul. But only God can do that.' "'A bitter laugh of mockery broke from the lips of the younger man. "'You shall see it yourself tonight,' he cried, seizing a lamp from the table.' "'Come. It is your own handiwork. Why shouldn't you look at it? You can tell the world all about it afterwards if you choose. Nobody would believe you. If they did believe you, they would like me all the better for it. I know the age better than you do, though you will prate about it so tediously. Come, I tell you, you have chattered enough about corruption. Now you shall look on it face to face.' there was the madness of pride in every word he uttered. He stamped his foot upon the ground in his boyish, insolent manner. He felt a terrible joy at the thought that someone else was to share his secret and that the man who had painted the portrait that was the origin of all his shame was to be burdened for the rest of his life with the hideous memory of what he had done. "'Yes,' he continued, coming closer to him "'and looking steadfastly into his stern eyes. "'I shall show you my soul. "'You shall see the thing that you fancy only God can see.' Hallward started back. "'This is blasphemy, Dorian,' he cried. "'You must not say things like that. "'They are horrible and they don't mean anything. "'You think so?' he laughed again. "'I know so.' "'I know so.' As for what I said to you tonight, I said it for your good. You know I have been always a staunch friend to you. Don't touch me. Finish what you have to say. A twisted flash of pain shot across the painter's face. He paused for a moment, and a wild feeling of pity came over him. After all, what right had he to pry into the life of Dorian Gray? If he had done a tithe of what was rumored about him, how much he must have suffered. Then he straightened himself up and walked over to the fireplace and stood there, looking at the burning logs with their frost-like ashes and their throbbing cores of flame. I am waiting, Basil, said the young man in a hard, clear voice. He turned round. What I have to say is this, he cried. You must give me some answer to these horrible charges that are made against you. If you tell me that they are absolutely untrue from the beginning to end, I shall believe you. "'Deny them, Dorian, deny them. "'Can't you see what I am going through? "'My God, don't tell me that you are bad "'and corrupt and shameful.' "'Dorian Gray smiled. "'There was a curl of contempt in his lips. "'Come upstairs, Basil,' he said quietly. "'I keep a diary of my life from day to day, "'and it never leaves the room in which it is written. "'I shall show it to you if you come with me. "'I shall come with you, Dorian, if you wish it. "'I see I have missed my train.' That makes no matter. I can go tomorrow, but don't ask me to read anything tonight. All I want is a plain answer to my question. That shall be given to you upstairs. I could not give it here. You will not have to read long. Chapter 13 He passed out of the room and began the ascent, Basil Hallward following close behind. They walked softly as men do instinctively at night. The lamp cast fantastic shadows on the wall and staircase. A rising wind made some of the windows rattle. When they reached the top of the landing, Dorian set the lamp down on the floor and, taking out the key, turned it in the lock. You insist on knowing, Basil? He asked in a low voice. Yes, I am delighted, he answered, smiling. Then he added, somewhat harshly, you are the one man in the world who is entitled to know everything about me. "'You have had more to do with my life than you think.' "'And taking up the lamp, he opened the door and went in. "'A cold current of air passed them, "'and the light shot up for a moment in a flame of murky orange. "'He shuddered. "'Shut the door behind you,' he whispered as he placed the lamp on the table. "'Hallward glanced round the room with a puzzled expression. "'The room looked looked as if it had not been lived in for years.' a faded Flemish tapestry, a curtain picture, an old Italian cassone, and an almost empty bookcase that was all that it seemed to contain, besides a chair and a table. As Dorian Gray was lighting a half-burned candle that was standing on the mantel shelf, he saw that the whole place was covered with dust and that the carpet was in holes. A mouse ran scuffling behind the wainscoting. There was a damp odor of mildew. "'So, you think that it is only God who sees the soul, Basil?' "'Draw back that curtain, and you will see mine.' "'The voice that spoke was cold and cruel. "'You are mad, Dorian, or playing a part,' muttered Hallward, frowning. "'You won't? Then I must do it myself,' said the young man, "'and he tore the curtain from its rod and flung it on the ground.' An exclamation of horror broke from the painter's lips as he saw in the dim light the hideous face on the canvas grinning at him. There was something in its expression that filled him with disgust and loathing. Good heavens! It was Dorian Gray's own face that he was looking at. The horror, whatever it was, had not yet entirely spoiled that marvelous beauty. There was still some gold in the thinning hair and some scarlet on the sensual mouth. The sodden eyes had been had kept something of the loveliness of their blue. The noble curves had not yet completely passed away from chiselled nostrils and from plastic throat. Yes, it was Dorian himself, but who had done it? He seemed to recognize his own brushwork, and the frame was his own design. The idea was monstrous, yet he felt afraid. He seized the lighted candle and held it to the picture, and the left-hand corner was his own name, traced in long letters of bright vermilion. It was some foul parody, some infamous ignoble satire. He had never done that. Still, it was his own picture. He knew it, and he felt as if his blood had changed in a moment from fire to sluggish ice. His own picture. What did it mean? Why had it altered? He turned and looked at Dorian Gray with the eyes of a sick man. His mouth twitched and his parched tongue seemed unable to articulate. He passed his hand across across his forehead. It was dank with clammy sweat. The young man was leaning against the mantel-shelf, watching him with that strange expression that one sees on the faces of those who are absorbed in a play when some great artist is acting. There was neither real sorrow in it nor real joy. "'There was simply the passion of the spectator "'with perhaps a flicker of triumph in his eyes. "'He had taken the flower out of his coat "'and was smelling it or pretending to do so. "'What does this mean?' cried Hallward at last. "'His own voice sounded shrill and curious in his ears. "'Years ago, when I was a boy,' said Dorian Gray, "'crushing the flower in his hand, "'you met me, flattered me, "'and taught me to be vain of my good looks.' One day you introduced me to a friend of yours who explained to me the wonder of youth and you finished a portrait of me that revealed to me the wonder of beauty. In a mad moment that even now I don't know whether I regret or not, I made a wish. Perhaps you would call it a prayer. I remember it. Oh, how well I remember it. No, the thing is impossible. The room is damp. Mildew has got into the canvas. The paints I used had some wretched mineral poison in them. I-, I tell you, the thing is impossible. Ah, what is impossible, murmured the young man, going over to the window and leaning his forehead against the cold, mist-stained glass. You told me you had destroyed it. I was wrong. It has destroyed me. I don't believe it is my picture. Can't you see your ideal in it? Said Dorian bitterly. My ideal, as you call it, as you called it. "'There was nothing evil in it, nothing shame. "'Shameful, you were to be such an ideal "'as I shall never meet again. "'This is the face of a satyr. "'It is the face of my soul. "'Christ, what a thing I must have worshipped. "'It has the eyes of a devil. "'Each of us has heaven and hell in him, Basil,' "'cried Dorian with a wild gesture of despair. Hallward turned again to the portrait and gazed at it. "'My God, if it is true!' He exclaimed, and this is what you have done with your life. Why, you must be worse even than those who talk against you fancy to be. He held the light up again to the canvas and examined it. The surface seemed to be quite undisturbed as he had left it. It was from within, apparently, that the foulness and horror had come. Through some strange quickening of inner life, the leprosies of sin were slowly eating the thing away. The rotting of a corpse in a watery grave was not so fearful. His hands shook and the candle fell from its socket onto the floor and lay there sputtering. He placed his foot on it and put it out. Then he flung himself into the rickety chair that was standing by the table and buried his face in his hands. Good God, Dorian, what a lesson! What an awful lesson! There was no answer, but he could hear the young man sobbing at the window. Pray, Dorian, pray! he murmured. What is it that one taught that what is it that one was taught to say in one's boyhood? Lead us not into temptation. Forgive us our sins. Wash away our iniquities. Let us say that together. The prayer of your pride has been answered. The prayer of your repentance will be also answered. I worshiped you too much. I am punished for it. You worshiped yourself too much. We are both punished. Dorian Gray turned slowly around and looked at him with tear-dimmed eyes. It is too late, Basil he faltered. It is never too late, Dorian. Let us kneel down and try. If we cannot remember a prayer, isn't there a verse somewhere? Though your sins be as scarlet, yet I will make them as white as snow? Those words mean nothing to me now. Hush, don't say that. You have done enough evil in your life. My God, don't you see that accursed thing leering at us? Dorian Gray glanced at the picture, and suddenly an uncontrollable feeling of hatred for Basil Hallward came over him, as though it had been suggested to him by the image on the canvas, whispered into his ear by those grinning lips. The mad passions of a hunted animal stirred within him, and he loathed the man who was seated at the table more than in his whole life he had ever loathed anything. He glanced wildly around. Something glimmered on the top of the painted chest that faced him. His eyes fell on it. He knew what it was. It was a knife that he had brought up some days before to cut a piece of cord that had that had forgotten to take away with him. He moved slowly towards it, passing hallward as he did so. as soon as he got behind him, he seized it and turned around. Hallward stirred in his chair as if he was going to rise. He rushed at him and dug the knife into the great vein that is behind his ear, crushing the man's head down on the table and stabbing again and again. There was a stifled groan and the horrible sound of someone choking with blood. Three times the outstretched arms shot up convulsively, waving grotesque stiff fingers in the air. He grabbed him twice more, but the man did not move. Something began to trickle on the floor. He waited for a moment, still pressing the head down. Then he threw the knife on the table and listened. He could hear nothing but the drip, drip of the threadbare carpet. He opened the door and went out on the landing. The house was absolutely quiet no one was about. For a few seconds he stood bending over the balustrade and peering down into the black seething well of darkness. Then he took out the key and returned to the room locking himself in as he did so. The thing was still seated in the chair, straining over the table with bowed head and humped back and long fantastic arms. Had it not been for the red jagged tear in the neck and the clotted black pool that was slowly widening on the table, one would have said that the man was simply asleep. How quickly it had all been done. He felt strangely calm and, walking over to the window, opened it and stepped out onto the balcony. The wind had blown the fog away and the sky was like a monstrous peacock's tail, starred with myriads of golden eyes. He looked down and saw the policeman going his rounds and flashing the long beam of his lantern on the doors of the silent houses. The crimson spot of a prowling handsome gleamed at the corner and then vanished. A woman in a fluttering shawl was creeping slowly by the railings, staggering as she went. Now and then she stopped and peered back. Once she began to sing in a hoarse voice. The policeman strolled over and said something to her. She stumbled away, laughing. A bitter blast swept across the square. The gas lamps flickered and became blue, and the leafless trees shook their black iron branches to and fro. He shivered and went back, closing the window behind him. Having reached the door, he turned the key and opened it, he did not even glance at the murdered man he felt that the secret of the whole thing was not to realize the situation the friend who had painted the fatal portrait to which all his misery had been due had gone out of his life that was enough. Then he remembered the lamp. It was a rather curious one of Moorish workmanship, made of dull silver inlaid with arabesques of burnished steel, and studded with coarse turquoises. Perhaps it might be missed by his servant, and questions would be asked. He hesitated for a moment, then he turned back and took it from the table. He could not help seeing the dead thing, How still it was! How horribly white the long hands looked! It was like a dreadful wax image. Having locked the door behind him, he crept quietly downstairs. The woodwork creaked and seemed to cry out as if in pain. He stopped several times and waited. No, everything was still. It was merely the sound of his own footsteps. When he reached the library, he saw the bag and coat in the corner they must be hidden somewhere he unlocked a secret press that was in the wainscoting a press in which he kept his own curious disguises and put them into it he could easily burn them afterwards then he pulled out his watch it was 20 minutes to 2 he sat down and began to think every year every month almost men were strangled in england for what he had for what he had done There had been a madness of murder in the air. Some red star had come too close to the earth, and yet what evidence was there against him? Basil Hallward had left the house at eleven. No one had seen him come in again. Most of the servants were at Selby Royal. His valet had gone to bed. Paris, yes, it was to Paris that Basil had gone, and by the midnight train as he had intended. With his curious reserved habits, it would be months before any suspicions would be aroused. Months! Everything could be destroyed long before then. A sudden thought struck him. He put on his fur coat and hat and went out into the hall. "'There he paused, hearing the slow, heavy tread "'of the policeman on the pavement outside "'and seeing the flash of the bull's eye "'reflected in the window. "'He waited and held his breath. "'After a few moments, he drew back the latch "'and slipped out, again, "'shutting the door very gently behind him. "'Then he began ringing the bell. "'In about five minutes, his valet appeared, "'half-dressed and looked very drowsy. "'I am sorry to have to wake you up, Francis.' he said, stepping in. But I had forgotten my latch-key. What time is it? Ten minutes past two, sir, answered the man, looking at the clock, blinking. Ten minutes past two? How horribly late! You must wake me up at nine tomorrow. I have some work to do. All right, sir. Did anyone call this evening? Mr. Hallward, sir. He stayed here till eleven, then he went away to catch his train. Oh, I am sorry I didn't see him. Did he leave any message? No, sir, except that he would write to you from Paris if he did not find you at the club. That will do, Francis. Don't forget to call me at nine tomorrow. No, sir. The man shambled down the passage into his slippers. Dorian Gray threw his hat and coat upon the table and passed into the library. For a quarter of an hour he, he walked up and down the room, biting his lip and thinking, then he took down the blue book from one of the shelves and began to turn over the leaves. Allan Campbell, one fifty two Her- Herford Street, Mayfair. Yes, that was the man he wanted. Chapter fourteen. At nine o'clock the next morning, his servant came in with a cup of chocolate on a tray and opened the shutters. Dorian was sleeping quite peacefully, lying on his right side with one hand underneath his cheek. He looked like a boy who had been tired out with play or study. The man had to touch him twice on the shoulder before he woke, and as he opened his eyes, a faint smile passed across his lips as though he had been lost in some delightful dream, yet he had not dreamed at all his night had been untroubled by any images of pleasure or of pain. But youth smiles without any reason. It is one of his chiefest charms. He turned round and, leaning upon his elbow, began to sip his chocolate. The mellow November sun came streaming into the room. The sky was bright and there was a genial warmth in the air. It was almost like a morning in May. Gradually, the events of the preceding night "'crept with silent, blood-stained feet into his brain "'and reconstructed themselves there "'with terrible distinctness. "'He winced at the memory of all that he had suffered, "'and for a moment and for a moment the same curious feeling of loathing for Basil Hallward that that had made him kill him, as he sat in the chair, came back to him, and he grew cold with passion. The dead man was still sitting there too, and in the sunlight now, how horrible that was! Such hideous things were for the darkness, not for the day. He felt that, if he brooded on what he had gone through, he would sicken or grow mad. There were sins whose fascination was more in the memory than in the doing of them strange triumphs that gratified the pride more than the passions and gave to the intellect a quickened sense of joy greater than any joy they brought or could ever bring to the senses but this was not one of them it was a thing to be driven out of the mind to be drugged with poppies to be strangled lest it might strangle one itself. When the half hour struck, he passed his hand across his forehead and then got up hastily and dressed himself with even more than his usual care, giving a good deal of attention to the choice of his necktie and scarf pin and changing his rings more than once. He spent a long time also over breakfast, tasting the various dishes, talking to his valet about some new liveries that he was thinking of getting made for the servants at Selby and going through his correspondence. At some of the letters he smiled. Three of them bored him. One he read several times over and then tore up with a slight look of annoyance in his face. That awful thing, a woman's memory, as Lord Henry had once said. After he had drunk his cup, his cup of black coffee, he wiped his lips slowly with a napkin, motioned to his servant to wait, and going over to the table, sat down and wrote two letters. One he put in his pocket and the other he handed to the to the valet. Take this round to 152 Herford Street, Francis, and if, Mrs. and if Mr. Campbell is out of town, get his address. As soon as he was alone, he lit a cigarette and began sketching upon a piece of paper, drawing first flowers and bits of architecture and then human faces. Suddenly, he remarked that every face that he drew seemed to have a fantastic likeness to Basil Hallward. He frowned and, getting up, went over to the bookcase and took out a volume at hazard. He was determined that he would not think about what had happened until it became absolutely necessary that he should do so. When he had stretched himself on the sofa, he looked at the title page of the book. It was Gautier's Aimant et Kame, Charpentier's Japanese paper edition, with the Jacques Marc etching. The binding was of citron green leather with a design of gilt trellis work and dotted pomegranates. It had been given to him by Adrian Singleton. As he turned over the pages, his eye fell on the poem about the hand of Lessenere, the cold yellow hand du supplice encore malleve with its dowdy red hairs and its doix de faune. He glanced at his own white taper fingers, shuddering slightly in spite of himself, and passed on till he came till he came to those lovely stanzas upon Venice. How exquisite they were! As one read them, one seemed to be floating down the green waterways of the pink and pearl city, seated in a black gondola with silver prow and trailing curtains. The mere lines looked to him like those straight lines of turquoise blue that follow one as one pushes out onto the Lido. The, the sudden flashes of color reminded him of the gleam of the opal and iris-throated birds that flutter round the tall honeycombed champanil or stalk with such stately grace through the dim, dust-stained arcades. Leaning back with half-closed eyes, he kept saying to himself over and over, Divan une façade rose sur les marbre d'un escalier. "'The whole of Venice was in those two lines. "'He remembered the autumn that had passed, that he had passed there "'and a wonderful love that had stirred him "'to mad, delightful follies. "'There was romance in every place, "'but Venice, like Oxford, "'had kept the background for romance, "'and to the true romantic, "'background was everything, "'or almost everything. "'Basil had been with him part of the time "'and had gone wild over Teneret. "'Poor Basil!' What a horrible way for a man to die. He sighed and took up the volume again and tried to forget. He read of the swallows that fly in and out of the little cafe at Smyrna, where the hajis sit counting their amber beads and the turbaned merchants smoke their long tasseled pipes and talk gravely to each other. He read of the obelisk in in the... place de la Concorde that weeps tears of granite in this lonely sunless exile and longs to be back by the hot lotus-covered Nile, where there are sphinxes and red and rose-red ibises and white vultures with gilded claws and crocodiles with small barrel eyes that crawl over the green steaming mud. He began to brood over those verses which, drawing music from Kistane Marvel, tell of that curious statue that Gautier compares to a contralto voice, the monstre charmant that couches in the peripheral room of the Louvre. But after a time, the book fell from his hand. He grew nervous, and a horrible fit of terror came over him. What if Alan Campbell should be out of England? Days would elapse before he could come back. Perhaps he might refuse to come. What could he do then? Every moment was of vital importance. They had been great friends once, five years before, almost inseparable indeed. Then the intimacy had come suddenly to an end. When they met in society now, it was only Dorian Gray who smiled. Alan Campbell never did. He was an extremely clever young man, though he had no real appreciation of the visible arts, and whatever little sense of the beauty of poetry he possessed, he had gained entirely from Dorian his dominant intellectual passion was for science. At Cambridge, he had spent a great deal of his time working in the laboratory and had taken a good class in the natural science tripos of his year. Indeed, he was still devoted to the study of chemistry and had a laboratory of his own in which he used to shut himself up all day long, greatly to the annoyance of his mother, who had set her heart on his standing for Parliament and had a vague idea that a chemist was a person who made up prescriptions. He was an excellent musician, however, as well, and played both the violin and the piano better than most amateurs. In fact, it was music that had first brought him and Dorian Gray together, music that had indefinable attraction that Dorian seemed to be able to exercise whenever he wished, and indeed exercised often without being conscious of it. They had met at Lady Berkshire's the night that Rubinstein played there, and after that, Used to always be seen together at the opera or wherever good music was going on. For eighteen months their intimacy lasted. Campbell was always either at Selby Royal or in Grosvenor Square to him as to many others Dorian Gray was the type of everything Dorian Gray was the type of everything that is wonderful and fascinating in life whether or not a quarrel had taken place between them no one ever knew but suddenly people remarked that they scarcely spoke when they met and that Campbell seemed to always go away early from any party at which Dorian Gray was present He had changed, too, was strangely melancholy at times, appeared almost to dislike hearing music, and would never himself play, giving as his excuse when he was called upon that he was so absorbed in science that he had no time left in which to practice. And this was certainly true. Every day, he seemed to become more interested in biology, and his name appeared once or twice in some of the scientific reviews in connection with certain curious experiments. This was the man dorian gray was waiting for every second he kept glancing at the clock. As the minutes went by, he became horribly agitated. At last, he got up and began to pace up and down the room, looking like a beautiful caged thing. He took long, stealthy strides. His hands were curiously cold. The suspense became unbearable. Time seemed to him to be crawling with feet of lead. While he, by monstrous winds, was being swept towards the jagged edge of some black cleft of precipice, he knew what was waiting for him there, saw it, indeed, and shuddering, crushed with dank hands his burning lids, as though he would have robbed the very brain of sight and driven driven the eyeballs back into their cave. It was useless. The brain had its own food upon which it battened, and the imagination, made grotesque by terror, twisted and and distorted as a living thing by pain, danced like some foul puppet on a stand, and grinned through moving masks. Then suddenly time stopped for him. Yes, that blind, slow-breathing thing crawled no more, and horrible thoughts, time being dead, raced nimbly on in front and dragged a hideous future from its grave and showed it to him. He stared at it. Its very horror made him stone. At last the door opened and his servant entered. He turned glazed eyes upon him. Mr. Campbell, sir, said the man. A sigh of relief broke from his parched lips, and the color came back to his cheeks. "'Ask him to come in at once, Francis.' "'He felt that he was himself again. "'His mood of cowardice had passed away. "'The man bowed and retired. "'In a few moments, Alan Campbell walked in, "'looking very stern and rather pale, "'his pallor being intensified "'by his coal black hair and dark eyebrows. "'Alan, this is kind of you. "'I thank you for coming. "'I had intended never to enter your house again, Gray, "'but you said it was a matter of life and death.' "'His voice was hard and cold.' he spoke with slow deliberation. There was a look of contempt in the steady, searching gaze that he turned on Dorian. He kept his hands in his pockets of his astrakhan coat, and seemed not to have noticed the gesture with which he had been greeted. Yes, it is a matter of life and death, Alan, and to more than one person. Sit down. Campbell took a chair by the table, and Dorian sat opposite to him. The two men's eyes met, In Dorian's there was infinite pity. He knew What he was going to do was dreadful. After a strained moment of silence, he leaned across and said, very quietly, but watching the effect of each word upon the face of him he had sent for, Alan, in a locked room at the top of his house, a room to which nobody but myself has has had access, a dead man is seated at a table. He has been dead ten hours now. Don't stir and don't look at me like that. Who the man is? Why he died, how he died, are matters that do not concern you. What you have to do is this. Stop, Gray. I don't want to know anything further. Whether what you have told me is true or not doesn't concern me. I entirely decline to be mixed up in your life. Keep your horrible secrets to yourself. They don't interest me anymore. Alan, they will have interest to you. This one will have interest to you. I am awfully sorry to you, Alan, but I can't help myself. You are the one man who was able to save me. "'I am forced to bring you into the matter. "'I have no option. "'Alan, you are scientific. "'You know about chemistry and things of that kind. "'You have made experiments. "'What you have got to do "'is to destroy the thing that is upstairs, "'to destroy it so that not a vestige of it will be left. "'Nobody saw this person come into this house. "'Indeed, at present moment, he is supposed to be in Paris. "'He will not be missed for months. "'When he is missed, there must be no trace of him found here.' "'You, Alan, you must change him "'and everything that belongs to him "'into a handful of ashes that I may scatter in the air. "'You are mad, Dorian. "'Ah, I was waiting for you to call me Dorian. "'You are mad, I tell you, "'mad to imagine that I would raise a finger to help you, "'mad to make this monstrous confession. "'I will have nothing to do with this matter, whatever it is. "'Do you think I am going to peril my reputation for you?' What is it to you, what is it to me, that devil's work, you are up to? It was suicide, Alan. I am glad of that. But who drove him to it? You, I should fancy. Do you still refuse to do this for me?' Of course I refuse. I will have absolutely nothing to do with it. I don't care what shame comes on you. You deserve it all. I should not be sorry to see you disgraced, publicly disgraced. How dare you ask me, of all men in the world, to mix myself up in this horror? I should have thought you knew more about people's characters. Your friend, Lord Henry Watson, can have taught you much about psychology, whatever else he has taught you. Nothing will induce me to stir a step to help you. Don't have, you have come to the wrong man. Go to some of your friends. Don't come to me. Alan, it was murder. I killed him. You don't know what he had made, you don't know how he had made me suffer. Whatever my life is, he had more to do with the making or the marrying of of the marring of it than poor Harry has had. He may not have intended it, but the result was the same. Murder, good God, Dorian. Is that what you have come to? "'I shall not inform upon you. "'It is not my business. "'Besides, without my stirring in the matter, "'you are certain to be arrested. "'Nobody ever commits a crime "'without doing something stupid, "'but I will have nothing to do with it. "'You must have something to do with it. "'Wait, wait a moment. "'Listen to me. "'Only listen, Alan. "'All I ask is that you perform "'a certain scientific experiment. "'You go to hospitals and dead houses "'and the horrors that you do there won't affect you.' If if in some hideous dissecting room or fetid laboratory you found this man lying on a leaden table with red gutters scooped out, for the blood to flow through. You would simply look upon him as an admirable subject. You would not turn a hair. You would not believe that you were doing anything wrong. On the contrary, you would probably feel that you are benefiting the human race, or, or increasing the sum of knowledge in the world, or gratifying intellectual curiosity, or something of that kind. What I want you to do is merely what you have done often before." indeed to destroy to destroy a body must be far less horrible than what you are accustomed to at work and remember it is only a, it is the only piece of evidence against me if it is discovered i am lost and it is sure to be discovered unless you help me i have no desire to help you you forget that i am sim- simply indifferent to the whole thing it has nothing to do with me Alan, I entreat you, think of the position I am in. Just before you came in, I almost fainted with terror. You may know terror yourself some day. No, don't think of that. Look at the matter purely from the scientific point of view. You don't inquire where dead things on which you experiment come from. Don't inquire now. I have told you too much as it is, but I beg of you to do this. We were friends once, Alan. Don't speak about those days, Dorian. They are dead the dead linger sometimes. The man upstairs will not go away. He is sitting at the table with bowed head and outstretched arms. Alan, Alan, if you don't come to my assistance, I am ruined. Why, they will hang me, Alan. Don't you understand? They will hang me for what I have done. There is no good in prolonging this science. I absolutely refuse to do anything in the matter. It is insane of you to ask me. You refuse? Yes, I entreat you, Alan. It is useless. The same look of pity came into Dorian's eyes, then he stretched out his hand, took a piece of paper, and wrote something on it. He read it over twice, folded it carefully, and pushed it across the table. Having done this, he got up and went over to the window. Campbell looked at him in surprise, then took up the paper and opened it. As he read it, his face became ghastly pale, and he fell back in his chair. A horrible sense of sickness came over him, He felt as if his heart was beating itself to death in some empty hollow. After two or three minutes of terrible silence, Dorian turned round and came and stood behind him, putting his hand upon his shoulder. I am so sorry for you, Alan, he murmured, but you leave me no alternative. I have written a letter already. Here it is. You see the address? If you don't help me, I must send it. If you don't help me, I will send it you know what the result will be. But you are going to help me. It is impossible for you to refuse now. I tried to spare you. You will do me the justice to admit that. You were stern, harsh, offensive. You treated me as no man has ever dared to treat me, no living man at any rate. I bore it all. Now it is for me to dictate terms. Campbell buried his face in his hands, and a shudder passed through him. ''Yes, it is my turn to dictate terms, Alan. You know what they are. The thing is quite simple. Come, don't work yourself into this fever. The thing has to be done. Face it and do it!'' A groan broke from Campbell's lips, and he shivered all over. The ticking of the clock on the mantelpiece seemed to him to be dividing time into separate atoms of agony, each of which was too terrible to be borne. He felt as if an iron ring was being slowly tightened round his forehead, as if the disgrace with which he was threatened had already come upon him. The hand upon his shoulder weighed like a hand of lead. It was intolerable. It seemed to crush him. Come, Alan, you must decide at once. I cannot do it, he said mechanically, as though words could alter things. You must. You have no choice. Don't delay. He hesitated a moment. If there is a fire, is there a fire in the room upstairs? Yes, there is a gas fire with asbestos. I shall have to go home and get some things from the laboratory. No, Alan, you must not leave the house. Write out on a sheet of note paper what you want, and my servant will take a cab and bring the things back to you. Campbell scrawled a few lines, blotted them, and addressed an envelope to his assistant dorian took the note up and read it carefully then he rang the bell and gave it to his valet with orders to return as soon as possible and to bring the things with him as campbell as as the hall door shut campbell started nervously and having got up from the chair went over to the chimney-piece he was shivering with a kind of aug for nearly twenty minutes neither of the men spoke A fly buzzed noisily about the room, and the ticking of the clock was like the beat of a hammer. As the chime struck one, Campbell turned round, and, looking at Dorian Gray, saw that his eyes were filled with tears. There was something in the purity and refinement of that sad face that seemed to engage him. "'You are infamous, absolutely infamous,' he muttered. "'Hush, Alan, you have saved my life,' said Dorian. "'Your life?' "'Good heavens, what a life that is! "'You have gone from corruption to corruption, "'and now you have culminated in crime. "'And doing what I am going to do, "'what you force me to do, "'it is not of your life that I am thinking. "'Ah, Alan,' murmured Dorian with a sigh, "'I wish you had a thousandth part "'of the pity for me that I have for you.' "'He turned away as he spoke "'and stood looking out at the garden. "'Campbell made no answer.' after about ten minutes a knock came at the door, and the servant entered, carrying a large mahogany chest of chemicals, with a long coil of steel and platinum wire, and two rather curiously shaped iron clamps. "'Shall I leave the things here, sir?' he asked Campbell. "'Yes,' said Dorian, "'and I am afraid, Francis, that I have another errand for you. What is it, the name of the man at Richmond who supplies Selby with orchids?' Harden, sir,' "'Yes, Harden. you must go down to Richmond at once, see Hardin personally, and tell him to send twice as many orchids as I ordered, and to have as few white ones as possible. In fact, I don't want any white ones. It is a lovely day, Francis, and Richmond is a very pretty place. Otherwise, I wouldn't bother you about it.' "'No trouble, sir. At what time shall I be back?' Dorian looked at Campbell. "'How long will your experiment take, Alan?' he said in a calm and different voice. The presence of a third person in the room seemed to give him an extraordinary courage. Campbell frowned and bit his lip. It will take about five hours, he answered. It will be time enough, then, if you are back at half-past seven, Francis. Or stay. Just leave my things out for dressing. You can have the evening to yourself. I am not dining at home, so I shall not want you. Thank you, sir, said the man, leaving the room. Now, Alan— There is not a moment to be lost. How heavy this chest is. I'll take it for you. You bring the other things. He spoke rapidly and in an authoritative manner. Campbell felt dominated by him. They left the room together. When they reached the top landing, Dorian took out the key and turned it in the lock. Then he stopped and a troubled look came into his eyes. He shuddered. I don't think I can go in, Alan, he murmured. "'It is nothing to me. I don't require you,' said Campbell coldly. Dorian Dorian half-opened the door. As he did so, he saw the face of his portrait leering in the sunlight. On the floor in front of it, the torn curtain was lying. He remembered that the night before he had forgotten, for the first time in his life, to hide the fatal canvas that was about to rush forward, which he drew back with a shudder.' What was that lonesome red dew that gleamed, wet and glistening, on one of the hands as though the canvas had sweated blood? How horrible it was! More horrible, it seemed to him for the moment, than the silent thing that he knew was stretched across the table, the thing whose grotesque misshapen shadow and the spotted carpet showed him that it had not stirred but was still there as he left it. He heaved a deep breath opened the door a little wider and with half-closed eyes and averted head walked quickly in determined that he would not look even once upon the dead man then stooping, stooping down and taking up the gold and purple hanging he flung it right over the picture there he stopped feeling afraid to turn round and his eyes fixed himself on the intricacies of the pattern before him he heard campbell bringing in the heavy chest and the irons and the other things that he had required for his dreadful work he began to wonder if he and basil howard had ever met and if so what they had thought of each other leave me now said a stern voice behind him Hi, everybody. Thanks so much for listening. That brings me to the conclusion of the... Hi, everybody. And that brings me to the conclusion of The Picture of Dorian Gray, Chapter 11A through 13A. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed the reading. I want to say that uh, from here out, the... Hi, everybody, and that brings me to the conclusion of chapter 11a through 13a of Oscar Wilde's The Picture of Dorian Gray. Dorian has kind of gone pretty vile, right? Like he's kind of gone off the deep end here. But it's a really, really fascinating story. And I thank you so much for listening. So guys, from here out, I am trying to go ad free so you won't be bothered with the ads between the chapters. And uh, I would encourage you to please consider subscribing to the podcast with a monthly contribution of 99 cents for 99 or nine ninety nine. It would be so very helpful if you could do that. Or if that doesn't work for you, you can always um, cash app a tip to dollar sign Carla reads. That's Carla with the K. I thank you guys so much for listening here at Carla reads the classics. It really, really means a lot to me. I want to also remind you that there is also merchandise. Now, if you, uh, check the episode details, you will find the link to my store where you can uh, purchase Carla Reeds the Classics merchandise. So give it a, give it a look over and see if there's anything there that suits your fancy guys. Thank you so much for listening here at Carla Reeds the Classics. Until next time. <laughs>